0: Welcome, everyone, to The Elevator Pitch, an ATS Breathe Easy podcast. My name is Siva Bavani. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University. On this podcast, I talk to the scientists behind innovative new studies to get their elevator pitch, the big picture story behind their research. And importantly, we explore how these studies can change the way we care for patients in the ICU. Dr. Evans, could you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Laura Evans. I'm a adult pulmonary critical care physician at the University of Washington, uh, at the Professor of the School of Medicine. And my day job is I'm the medical director of critical care at the University of Washington Medical Center. And um, I've had the privilege of being the co-chair of the Adult Surviving Substance Campaign Guidelines now for two cycles of revisions, um, including this most recent one that was just released.
0: Great. And today we're here to discuss the recent surviving sepsis guidelines.
1: Surviving sepsis surviving guidelines sepsis New York guidelines. Guidelines. Americans die of sepsis every year.
0: It's a lot to summarize the entirety of sepsis in three minutes. But Dr. Evans, could you give us your elevator pitch for surviving sepsis?
1: You're right. That is a, a big task. I'll do my best. Surviving sepsis is now approaching 20 years of work uh, in sepsis, and it started in 2002 with essentially a lot of smart people getting together at a meeting and saying you know what we really need to work in a cohesive coordinated fashion to improve care for patients with sepsis part of that effort has been the development of evidence-based clinical practice guidelines and those were first published in 2004 a revision was then published in 2008 2012 2016 you get the idea every four to five years and we just released the 2021 update, in terms of the sum total of the guidelines, I think if I had to sum it up with a take home point, it continues to emphasize the essential nature of early recognition and prompt management of patients with sepsis and septic shock. We did take a little bit of a different approach. uh, This time, in some respects, we have a very diverse panel, more diverse than previous panels, representing every continent of the world, with the exception of Antarctica. We did a very formalized process uh, to decide what questions we would try to answer in this guideline process, including an international survey of looking at where there's variation or or uncertainty in people's practice, with emphasizing that those were questions that we might want to address within the guidelines. And I think very critically, we had six public members who participated in this guideline panel, and we added questions about long-term outcomes of survivors of sepsis, so beyond mortality, looking at what matters to patients and their families when they survive sepsis. Our public members were really critical to that piece. We ended up with 93 recommendations. really emphasizes patient-centered outcomes, early recognition, prompt management. As you look through these guidelines, you'll find that a lot of the recommendations are weak recommendations or best practice statements or where we couldn't issue a recommendation. I think those highlight areas where Hopefully, the guidelines can serve as evidence of where we think there are research gaps and further work to be done yet to improve the care of patients with sepsis.
0: That was great. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Definitely, the take home points are the early recognition, prompt management, and the patient centered outcomes. So, I want to start with the early recognition. One of the things the guidelines now recommends against using is QSOFA as a screening tool for sepsis. Could you tell us more about this recommendation and also about? What are the recommended tools for screening for sepsis?
1: Well, you, you've jumped right to the critical point, right? Which is we're emphasizing early recognition, but how do we guide people in actually doing that? The 2016 consensus guidelines uh, to redefine sepsis and you know, into the rubric of sepsis and septic shock rather than sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock, you know, resulted in the um, development of the qSOFA tool. And we asked the question in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign 2021 updates as to is the QSOFA tool useful in helping screen for patients with sepsis? And I think that's a critical point because we're talking about screening, not about prognostication or not about risk stratification with that. And I think uh, some have conflated those as the same element within the community. And I think that QSOFA, had gotten um, a little bit kind of conflated as the tool for everything from that. So we looked at a comparison between QSOFA using evidence of physiologic abnormalities like surge criteria or the national early warning score news or the modified early warning score news and looking at how well they were predictive of the presence of sepsis, not predictive of the risk of mortality. Because when we think about a screening tool, we want it to be sensitive. Ideally, we also want it to be specific, but we don't want to miss patients with sepsis with that. And so when we looked at this and we pulled all the information that we could find about this, and the signal was fairly clear amongst us that in terms of prediction of the presence of sepsis, that using physiologic tools like SIRS, MUSE, and NEWS outperformed QSOFA for the detection of sepsis that's different than qsofa outperform those in terms of the prediction of risk of mortality. So that's how we ended up with this recommendation against the use of qsofa as a single screening tool for looking for patients with sepsis. It doesn't exactly answer your, your second part of your question which is okay you're telling me not to use qsofa what should i use instead. What the guidelines panel found as we looked through all this extensive literature is that there are over 50 published studies that show an association between a sepsis performance improvement program that included an effort at screening and an association between implementation of that program and reduced mortality. However, a lot of the screening tools are slightly different, and so we were not able to issue a guidelines level recommendation of exactly what you should do for screening, Other than to say, it looks like the physiologic tools perform better, and my own personal, this is not the official guidelines position, my own personal basis is, you you really need to think about what might work in your local center, right? That adaptation of an implementation of guidelines is always ultimately local. Other folks obviously have really gone deep into looking at predictive analytics. How can you do this with less clinician input or less direct clinician input and really leverage the power of the electronic health record from that? And that, I think, is an area where we'll see more and more come along and hopefully be able to provide more discrete guidance to the community from.
0: So I think that's a really important distinction that you made about the nuance of the tool, whether it's going to predict, does the patient have sepsis versus will my patient survive this episode of sepsis? And so it's interesting to kind of think about the tools in terms of the different use cases as far as screening, prognostication, and risk stratification. And you mentioned, you know, predictive analytics and using electronic health record data. What do you see as the ideal sepsis screening or prognostic tools of the future?
1: Oh, if I knew that answer, (laughs) we'd, we'd save ourselves a lot of time. We probably mostly agree I think as a community, as to what the ideal tools would be, right? Which is to have a tool that accurately identifies patients early uh, with sepsis, or even you could push that upstream and accurately identify patients early with infection so that you can initiate treatment of that infection and hopefully prevent sepsis before it even develops. I think there's a multi-stage approach to this of, can I can I accurately identify patients with infection before they even develop sepsis and treat it and prevent the sepsis? Can I accurately and early identify patients with sepsis so that I can initiate appropriate management and prevent further severe illness? And then exactly as you said, what how do the risk stratification or prognostic tools help me care for a patient or help my team care for a patient?
0: Now that we've talked about recognition of sepsis and screening patients for sepsis. The next question is of course, timing of the antibiotics. How do the new guidelines approach timing of antibiotics in patients suspected of having sepsis?
1: Fundamentally, I don't think these guidelines are very different from the prior guideline. We all believe that patients with sepsis should get antibiotics promptly. I think the concept of how we formulated the recommendations in this guidelines are a little bit different in the sense that they incorporate two elements, I think, to the timing of antibiotics question. And those two elements are, how certain are you that this patient has an infection? And then how sick is this patient? Sick patients with a po- even a possibility of sepsis or patients with high likelihood of infection, should get their antimicrobials in immediately, ideally within one hour of recognition. Patients who are less sick, not in shock, with a lower certainty or a lower probability of infection, get that focused evaluation done, and then target getting your antibiotics in within three hours of recognition.
0: I think the nuance added in these guidelines is really important. Something that's Clinically intuitive, but to actually kind of deconstruct it into this concept of how sick are they and how certain are you that they're infected. I think that's a really interesting and useful way to break down sepsis and timing of antibiotics. The next big topic I wanted to talk about is fluids. The two big questions a lot of people want to know the answer to are what type of fluids and how much fluids in resuscitating a patient with sepsis. Yes,
1: fluids are always a hot topic from that. Let me start with the recommendation around initial resuscitation. You'll remember from the 2012 and 2016 guidelines that the initial recommendation was for at least 30 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid fluid within three hours for patients with evidence of hypotension or sepsis-induced hypoperfusion, which typically was operationally characterized by an elevated lactate. And in 2016, that was a strong recommendation based on low quality of evidence. And so we, of course, asked the same PICO question, updated all the literature searches. So after taking all of that, you know, and predominantly we're looking at literature that is observational here, right? We have a lot of observational literature, but we don't have a randomized controlled trial of 20 versus 30 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid or 15 versus 25, we just don't have that level of, of data from that. So we have really overwhelming amounts of observational data at this point, whether it be you know, the individual level pooled meta-analysis from the ARISE process and promise trials, where the average amount of fluid that patients received for the initial resuscitation was around 27 mils per kilogram to the New York state data that showed You know, when you look at New York statewide sepsis performance improvement program looked at patients who received 30 milliliters per kilogram in the first three hours as part of the sepsis bundle uh, had improved, it was associated with improved outcomes compared to those who didn't. So we ended up again, making a recommendation that for patients with sepsis induced hypoperfusion or septic shock, we suggest, and I want to emphasize that we suggest, because that's a little bit different from 2016, we suggest that at least 30 milliliters of per kilogram of IV crystalloid fluid should be given within the first 3 hours of resuscitation. So, overall same volume but a change in the strength of the recommendation. Second part of the question is I think still on this topic of how much okay, I've given my initial fluid resuscitation, now what? Do I keep giving fluids? Do I stop giving fluids? And how do I make that determination and what do I do? And that so this is kind of concept of frequent reassessment using dynamic measures as well as cap refill time and lactate levels to help guide resuscitation. We could not formulate a recommendation around targeting a liberal versus restrictive fluid balance. That wasn't for lack of trying. We recognize that it's, it's a really critical question. However, you know, the data is, I would say, is not very certain at this point in time. And I think our statement reflects the state, the level of uncertainty. So we issued no recommendation um, around that. So I think highlights, I think a critical research gap and one that we hope will have ongoing work that helps inform future revisions of the guidelines and obviously how we take care of patients as well.
0: So it's interesting that you brought up that most of these recommendations surrounding fluids are based on observational data. And these are fundamental, and as you said, critical questions as far as amount of fluids, when to stop fluid resuscitation, what to monitor and track, and whether to use the general liberal or restrictive fluid strategy. Do you think these fundamental and critical questions are answerable or are they so basic and kind of incorporated into clinical practice that it would be hard to ever have a definitive strong evidence behind these kind of guidelines?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, interpret my answer with the big asterisk that I'm not a clinical trialist. There is a lot of complexity to how these patients are managed. It may be very difficult on a large RCT basis where you're studying populations, may be very difficult to answer the question definitively. I do think we can get closer. I think there's a lot of good work being done uh, to help us get closer to that, whether you look at things like the Clovers trial and and other other ongoing work in this space. So I, I do hope, I feel hopeful that we can get closer. I don't know that we're gonna have a definitive answer that says, this precise volume is the right amount across the board.
0: And as far as what type of fluids to use in sepsis, do you think we have more uh, evidence behind that as far as the question of normal saline or balanced crystalloids?
1: I think we have more. I think what's interesting, of course, is that you know new new data is coming out all the time, right? This guideline is a is a massive production uh, to get done and, and people really put in amazing hours and time of work. But at some point we also need to sort of cut off the, the literature review period and say, you know, we have to move this process forward. Where we ended up with this revision of the guideline recommendation was a suggestion that for adults with sepsis or septic shock, we suggest using balanced crystalloids instead of normal saline for resuscitation. That, however, because of the literature review period was closed, does not include um, the most recent large trial data from the BASICS study from Brazil, which did not show um, a difference between um, balanced crystalloids uh, as compared to normal saline for resuscitation decisions about updating the recommendation in light of the basics trial would be a, a whole big process of you know reconvening a guidelines panel and doing that. And it raises a bigger question to me as somebody who's involved in guideline development of what does the sort of process look like for issuing even potentially interim guideline updates um, in between this four to five year cycle. It's something that we're working on actively within the surviving sepsis campaign as to a kind of rapid cycle guidelines update for really critical questions or emerging data that's practice changing.
0: That's definitely interesting that the guidelines kind of come out every four to five years and the field of sepsis and critical care at large kind of evolves in the interim. And I think the fluids debate really highlights the complexity in the process of writing these guidelines.
1: Yeah, I think one of, you know, one of the things that makes me you know, I'm, I'm very happy to be involved with with surviving sepsis on many levels, but one of the things that I think is a real strength is the rigor of the guideline development process. It's very methodical, it's very rigorous. I think that's a real strength, particularly around guidelines that get you know the level of attention that SSC does. It also, is a downside in terms of the guidelines being nimble and responsive um, to adhere to this very strict rigorous process and we've made a very deliberate decision not to do any methodologic shortcuts for the sake of getting things out faster because we think that rigor is so important but i think it, it raises a really interesting question and we're working closely with the guide group at mcmaster around how do you preserve that rigor while increasing the nimbleness particularly when there are sort of new critical findings that may be practice changing
0: dr evans thank you for your insights into the surviving sepsis guidelines and the process that it takes to develop these guidelines it was great having you on the podcast
1: thanks dr Bavani. wonderful to be here and i hope this was helpful to the community
0: the takeaways from today's episode number one the most recent Surviving Sepsis Guidelines involved a diverse panel and included public members in order to identify outcomes that are important to patients and families who survive sepsis. Number two, sepsis scoring tools can be used for screening or prognostication, and it's important to identify the appropriate use cases for these tools. QSOFA is no longer recommended as a tool in screening for sepsis. Number three. Antibiotic timing is nuanced and should be based on both the clinical suspicion for infection as well as the severity of illness. Number four, although the guidelines suggest 30 cc's per kg as initial fluid resuscitation in sepsis, the amount, the timing, and the type of fluids remain unanswered questions. Thank you all for listening to The Elevator Pitch. Join us next time for the big picture behind the latest critical care study.